This is episode 92 of the Swallow Your Pride podcast, and today's guest is Erica McLean. She graduated from Abilene Christian University in Abilene, Texas in 2016, worked in inpatient rehab as an SLP and therapy lead until starting her own mobile fees company in 2018 in Abilene and throughout West Texas. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders, and I know firsthand how much confusing and conflicting information there is out there about how we assess and treat swallowing disorders. This podcast is all about bringing everyone together, getting on the same page, being open to new ideas, and using evidence-based treatment strategies for our patients with dysphagia. So let's get into it. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. Hello there and welcome back. Just have a big announcement for everybody. We are going to be opening the doors to the MedSLP Collective on July 12th. I'm so excited to finally be opening them. Thank you, everybody who has been waiting so patiently. If you've been on the waiting list, you'll get an email right away. Um, yeah, so what is the MedSLP Collective if you are not familiar with it? Well, it was actually designed for a very specific group of medical SLPs. If you're feeling unfulfilled in your career as a medical SLP or perhaps a bit confused on how to move forward, if you're feeling completely overwhelmed, overworked, overstressed, misunderstood, underappreciated in your facility, if you feel like you're riding the therapy hamster wheel, unsure if you're even providing good care for your patients, if you are getting overwhelmed with how much medical SLP information was missing from your graduate education that you're now expected to know, maybe you're feeling a little bit angry that you received the same training as clinicians who work with kindergartners and now you feel like you have huge gaps in what you need to know to treat these medical cases. Maybe you've been working in the field for a while. Are you feeling frustrated that there's no one single centralized source to stay up to date on all the latest research and treatments that are coming out every year? Are you even sure that you're providing the right and best, most up-to-date treatment techniques for your patients? Well, imagine if there was one place that you could go to receive all the support and resources to help you eliminate these feelings. Imagine how much time and frustration you would save if you had immediate access to one centralized location for blind peer-reviewed resources. Imagine if you had access to several clinical experts and university professors to help guide you in your clinical decision-making with personalized responses to your clinical cases. Do you think then your patients would receive higher quality care and make progress towards their goals? Do you think you would get more rewarded and recognized for this progress among your patients? Well, this is exactly why I created the Medical SLP Collective. It's a monthly membership program and vibrant community of fellow medical SLP clinicians and researchers who are supporting each other to provide better care for their patients and therefore also advance their careers. So what do you get in the collective? You get weekly done-for-you resources. So each week you'll receive a new video created to help educate you all about all areas of medical SLP, including dysphagia, aphasia, motor speech disorders, voice disorders, NICU, PEDS, and cognitive communication. You'll also get information on how to advocate for your patients within the organizational bureaucracies that often make you feel like your patients don't matter to the doctors and nurses. Each video also comes with a PDF handout that gives you links to all the resources and references you need to implement and they can all be printed for convenience to take on the go. The resources never go away. The library just continues to grow. So you will always have access to all the previous videos and handouts. 
Also of note, all resources are blind peer reviewed. So you deserve to have confidence in knowing that the materials you are using for your patients are the latest evidence-based and designed to save you from weeding through all the crap. We cover aphasia, dysphagia, dysarthria, voice, cognitive communication, and NICU, just to name a few. Additionally, each month we have two-hour live webinars that are offered for ASHA CEUs, delivered by some of the most foremost clinical experts and researchers in the field, so you'll get a chance to vote on the most relevant topics to you each month. And also, if you can't attend the webinars live, that the recording is always put in our library. So if you join now or July 12th when we open, you have access to all of the previous past webinars that you can take for ASHA CEUs. And lastly, but I think most importantly, we have our private forum and Facebook group. So we have both a Facebook group and also a private forum that has its own app to ask all your clinical questions there. We have several, I believe, 20 to 25 different clinicians and researchers that act as moderators and mentors to ensure you receive personalized guidance supported by the evidence to help treat your patients as best as you can. Many of our members in the collective say that the private forum in the Facebook group is worth the price of admission alone as you get real-life frontline in-the-trenches support from your fellow clinicians with researchers to back it up and a team of trained guides to answer your every question. So again, medslpcollective.com. It is opening July 12th. It's a monthly membership site. So if you join us and you decide it's not for you, no biggie. We also have a seven-day money-back guarantee. So again, if you jump in, download every single resource, watch every single webinar, and still decide you don't like it, you can get your money back. So (laughs) I do hope that you will see the value of what it is. It's a wonderful community. I could not be more proud of how it's turned out. Yeah, I, I, I really don't have anything to say other than I love it so much and I really, truly hope you'll join us. So that will be opening on July 12th. Hello, Erica. Hi. How are you? I'm good. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for coming on and doing this. <laughs> I'm so excited. Yay. Okay. So tell the people a little about who you are. Okay. So I live in Abilene, Texas. And I graduated from undergrad at Abilene Christian University in 2014. And then I got my master's at Abilene Christian University in 2016. And so then I went right in and did inpatient rehab. And within a few months, I became, well, I was the first full-time speech therapist there that they had ever had in that building. And so that was fun. And then in a few months, I became one of the therapy leads, one of two. And then I just, I loved it so much. And then we got into the discussion of instrumental exams and I thought how fun it would be to be able to service that. And so I actually left inpatient rehab and started my own mobile fees company. And so now I do mobile fees full-time all around Abilene and West Texas. And so that's what I do. I love it. All right. So wait, what are we going to talk about today, Erica? So we are talking about how SLPs are fighting the good fight to not be the stepchildren in the rehab world because we all know that's true. Right. And, and one of one of the issues with that is young clinicians being in the world like myself, you know, when you're so new, it's hard to get people to take you seriously and what we can do about that. And I have tons of experience with that. And so I would love to help other young clinicians out. Yes, I love that. I feel like that's the most like that's the most emails and messages I get from people is like, I'm only a CF or I'm only a year or two out and no one will listen to me because I'm so young. Yeah. And, And, you know, it just, I know we have such smart, intelligent clinicians out there. And so I hate that we feel that way. So, 
I know it was, it was a good fight. And even now when I'm doing mobile fees, you know, I know I'm still a young clinician. And so I've worked really hard to get people to take me seriously as their expert in that area, which is hard when you're young and new. And, you know, it's just like when you walk into the doctor's office and the doctor looks like he's 12, you're like, can I get an older doctor, please? (laughs) And so that's the kind of experience that we've had. So but I want to change that, that stigma. Yeah. I love that you said that my son was seeing a specialist and really, I think the doctor has got to be in his like eighties at this point, but he did have a student with him. And so the student saw my son last week and, you know, it's horrible to say, but I was like, Oh my God, really? Like, I just wish we could see a regular doctor. Like, do I really have to see this guy? And he was so stinking good. He came Mm -hmm. in and he just had such great bedside manner with my son. And you know, he just said, I, I understand, you know, I probably, I mean, he literally looked like he was 13, but <laughs> he was like, I know I look young, but you know, I've had a lot of schooling and I was like, no, bud, you're fine. Like, and, and it was a great visit. And I, I hated that I had that reaction at first. I was like, no, Teresa, you know better, but yeah. <laughs> it yeah. just happens. It I mean, does. most of the people, most of the people that I do fees with are much more experienced and have been in the field longer than I have. And here I am doing the diagnostic testing on their patient and giving recommendations. And so, you know, that's a tricky area to be in, but it's, it's a good one. I like it. It is. So. It is. And, and I just, what I, what I do want to say too, is I love the more experienced clinicians that understand how important it is to stay up to date on everything. You know, like you said, I, I work with a lot of older clinicians too that I do fees for, but I just love the relationships that I have with them and that they're like, you know, what's new this week? What's new and great that I haven't read about in a while? You know, and I love that. I love that we can have those conversations together. And, you know, my one woman I work, she's like, I'm a dinosaur. I've been here for 40 years. You've got to tell me what's new and what's going on. And, but she actually keeps really up to date yeah. on stuff. So well, good yeah. for her. Yeah. yeah. So I thought I would just start by how I got into this place. So when I started at the inpatient rehab place, like I said, I was the first full-time SLP that they'd ever had. And so I came in with all these fresh ideas, ready to take over, ready to do it. And they were just not sure about me because before speech had been there like one or two days a week for a couple hours, really kind of stayed out of the way. And here I was, you know big smiled CSY ready to get in there. But I did. And I started requesting new materials and, you know, kind of reorganized the setup to make it work for me, kind of introduced myself to all the dietary staff, the nursing staff, and just really got in there. And then about five or six months into my CF, a leadership position came open. And for some reason, I was crazy enough to think I can do this. I've only been a clinician for five months, but I want to do this. And so when I went to apply, I remember them thinking like, oh, I never even thought that you would apply. Like it didn't even cross their radar that a speech therapist would apply for this position. And so everyone kept telling me, good for you. Like I never even thought about it. And at first I was flattered. And then I started thinking, why is it such a surprise that I want to apply for this job? You know, I'm just as qualified as the other people. And anyways, I ended up getting it. And I'll never forget the reactions of the team when the CEO announced that I was going to be one of the therapy leads. They all were just not shocked in a bad way, but like, again, it never even crossed their minds that speech would be the one announced to be the therapy lead. <laughs> so yeah. I became the therapy lead aside another physical therapist and we did it together. And it really helped me grow as a clinician, but also understanding the dynamics of a team. And so of course I was ready to get in there and change, but the important thing for me was to make sure I had relationships first. Like I didn't want to come in guns blazing, like, 
what was this before they were doing this so wrong before I need to change everything like that was just not the approach that I was going to take. And so being a lead really allowed me to have those relationships first. And with that relationship, I earned respect. And I just got close to people. And so then when you have respect, people acknowledge your requests and what you want to do. And so it just it worked out really well. And so I really loved my time there. But one of the main issues there was the instrumental exams. I'd been there for about two years and I kept getting pushback for MBSs and and inpatient rehab. The average day is like 10 to 14 days. And my MBSs were scheduled two weeks out. So what is that? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> as well, I mean, that doesn't affect me much for my therapy. And so then I pre- presented this entire presentation of doing in-house fees. If you get me the equipment, I can do it. It's a billable service. This is what our patients need. And unfortunately, I was told that that was too expensive and they weren't going to do that. And so that's when the light bulb went off. And I thought, well, if this is a problem here in a big inpatient rehab hospital, I can imagine the struggle that rural skilled nursing facilities are having. And so I'm going to start my own company and I'm going to service these patients that aren't getting instrumental follow exams. Okay. The problem with that is I had only been in the field for two years. And so what I really did for a year was soak up all of the dysphagia education that I could and become an expert in dysphagia because I don't want to go tell somebody else my recommendations if they're not evidence-based and proven. And so that's kind of how that all got started. So yeah. So I, I love two things that you said there, Erica. I love that you just decided to apply for this position. You know, I think so many times, I don't know what it is with SLPs, but like you said, like we're the, the redheaded stepchild and we think for some reason we can't apply for these positions mm-hmm. or we can't have these these leadership roles. And that's like one of the biggest things that I talk about with my inner circle leadership group is like, why not you? You know, you have this desire, you have this passion, you understand evidence-based practice, you understand how patients should be treated, you know, why not you? So I love that you just said, screw it, I'm going to apply. <laughs> I know. My husband and I was crazy because I was already coming home crying every day for my CF. (laughs) And then here I am saying, I'm going to go take this leadership role. But it honestly was the best thing I could have done for my career because it forced me to really step outside my comfort zone. I'm not really a people person. You know, in SLPs, we kind of like to stay in our little rooms and document and go see our patients. But here I was leading morning meetings and talking about progress reports and doing all of these things that was so outside my comfort zone. Um, but it really helped me grow and become a well-rounded physician or physician, <laughs> clinician. Yeah, yeah. But I, I did like it. But one of the reasons that I wanted, I wanted to touch on about why speech therapists are the redheaded stepchildren, some of it is out of our control, but some of it I really think we kind of fall into these habits as SLPs. So, I mean, a lot of it happens by default, right? So we treat a lot of times in the patient's room. No one sees us. Sometimes we document in separate places. Most of the facilities I'm at, the speech documentation area is separate. And then another big thing is our type of therapy mostly focuses on internal processes, whereas PT and OT, everything that they're working on mostly is visible, right? So if if you see a, a patient in physical therapy, you can say, oh, they walked 150 feet today. Yesterday, they walked 50. They're making great gains. Or this patient's able to don and off their socks and shoes today without the use of adaptive equipment. Great progress. But it takes a little more attention and time to notice somebody's improved complex problem solving. Yeah. You know? yeah. And so a lot of times people don't see the progress that we make with our patients. And so they just default to think PT and OT are making these great gains while speech is just a little bit slower, which sometimes isn't the case. But a lot of times in my experience, that's how it's been. 
And so those are things that have, are kind of out of our control, but we do have some things that we can control. And I do think a lot of times it's using evidence-based practice and explaining in detail our theories of what we're doing to other people who are looking from the outside. Because we do make our job look easy and we do, we're just, our therapy is just different. But the problem is when we make it look easy and we do things that are not evidence-based, other professionals can think they can do the same thing, right? That's such so a good point, yep. Yeah. If if I'm watching my patient eat at dinner and I'm billing that as therapy, then what stops other people from thinking I can do speech therapy and just watch my patient eat? Or I'm going to do a bedside swallow and I'm going to give modified textures until my patient stops coughing. When they stop coughing, that's the diet that they're on, right? So that doesn't take very much skill to change a diet that way. And so then we come the next day and we see that nursing or whoever has changed our patient's diet. And we're like, what happened? They're like, oh, well, they didn't cough on this. So that's what you do, right? That's how you change a patient's diet. And so we're really not doing ourselves or our field. We're doing a a disservice by, by doing things like that. And we've all been guilty of that at one point or another. And I totally know that. But those are things that we can change. But also when you are doing swallowing therapy or higher level cognitive therapy or aphasia therapy, be sure to have that relationship with nursing and PT and OT. And so you can explain your theories of what you're doing and what processes you're working on. And you're not just having them do an effortful swallow because they have dysphagia. You're doing an effortful swallow because the physiology states that this is the exercise that's appropriate for that impairment. And so... That is my little soapbox about making. No, I, lo- I loved every minute of that, Erica. I, I love that so much, and and that's what I know. That's what I think is so hard is that we've kind of done this to ourselves. We've shot ourselves in the foot, and now we're trying to crawl out of this hole. Like, no, respect us. We do know what we're talking about, but <laughs> I know some of us haven't shown that. And I, like you said, you're guilty of it. I'm guilty of it. I know when yeah. I first started, I had no friggin' clue what I was doing. And I, yeah. <laughs> so, and, yeah. and that kind of goes into being a young clinician. Like you, you do what your professors teach you. You do what your supervisor does. Yeah. But at some point you have to step out of that role of this is how it's always been done. And this, this is how the people I look up to have done it, but the research says to do it this way. And so that's part of really becoming a strong clinician right off the gate is making your clinical decisions based on evidence and not just because this is the way my supervisor does it, you know? Right. I love that you said, you know, establishing relationships is really important too. And I I think that's, I think that's the most important because, you know, we're not going to get respect from people by just, like you said, throwing research at them for no reason. And yeah. 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 And that's something I had to learn really quickly is the balance between being a strong clinician and advocating that speech gets fair treatment, but also not coming across as give me what I want and I'm whining about it, you know? Yeah. And I, I, I don't think that you could get results that way without a relationship with your DOR, with the director of nursing, with the charge nurse. No one's going to work with you and take your recommendations if you're demanding them, you yeah. know? They're, they're going to take them when they respect your opinion because you have a deep relationship and, they, and you've proven that you get results with evidence-based practice and then they're going to want to take your advice and they're going to want to be around you because they know that you're making the right decisions. Yeah. And so I definitely did have to learn that the hard way. I thought, you know, I'm going to come in and fight for speech and I'm going to, you know, I'm going to be on a level playing field with PT and OT no matter what. And that was the wrong approach. (laughs) I learned that quickly. And so basically my whole spiel here is about the, the foundation that you should have is relationships. Without relationships, you really have no practice or no basis for recommending anything. 
you know? Yeah. So. Yeah. I know. I remember when I first started, I, I tried to do like everything that my supervisors and, you know, the older clinicians wanted us to do. And it was like, I was almost so young that the PTs and OTs were like, no, no, this is how you do it. Like, this is how she always did it. So this is the way you have to do it. And I've just never been one to like, listen to that kind of direction <laughs> to begin with. Yeah. So I kind of like, I kind of like pushed back to begin with, but then the more I realized it, I was like, no, this is not how it should be, you yeah. know? So I think it's so hard to try to come out of that role of being yeah. the young clinician and you're supposed to listen to your, you know, quote unquote subordinates and OTs and PTs that have been there for 30 years, but they don't know, you know, they only know what they've been seeing. Like you said, from the outside, watching people eat yeah. and yeah. Yeah. And that's also a tricky spot when people say like, this is how she did it. Or if the administrator says the other SLP never ordered MBSs, why do you keep right. asking me for that? Right. You know, you want to handle that in a way where you're not throwing the other SLP under the bus and saying, well, she wasn't using evidence-based practice. You don't, you don't want to do that, but you just want to present them with, you know, what research tells us now is, yeah. you know, this is what we need to be doing. And so that's also tricky. And the same thing with OT and PT. Our field changes so much so frequently with research, you know, that I still have clinicians, PTs and OTs telling patients in the gym, just tuck your chin <laughs> when yeah. you're coughing. And I'm in the office like, ah, what are you yeah. doing? You know, yeah. so because that's just how it's always been. And so those are times to really get in there and educate and offer to do a lunch and learn or an in-service. I think in my experience, it's been more beneficial to just say, you know, we know more now and we have right. new research now, you know, I... I think it's like you said, you don't want to say, well, she sucked at her job. So, you know, <laughs> exactly. it's just, you know, we know yeah. more now and, and this is why this is the way I want to practice just because this is what the research has shown us. So mm -hmm, for sure. And, and that is actually an experience I had in my inpatient rehab. They sent me to get vital stem certified, which was amazing. But then every patient that came in coded with dysphagia, they were like, why aren't you hooking this patient up to vital stem? Um, Give them vital stem. You know, and so then I had to show the research of what vital stim actually does, what patients it's appropriate for. And then when I had actual evidence and research to my DOR, I never again got questioned on my clinical decisions, which was that's amazing. Awesome. Because, yeah. and, and that's how I got that respect so quickly is I had it and I was like, here you go. This is why I'm not doing this. And he was like, okay, yeah. I got it. Gotcha. <laughs> I had the exact same experience. And I, I actually, I was like so scared because I think I had only been working like a year maybe. And same thing, the DOR kept asking me, like, why are you not doing vital sim with all these people? And I was like, because they're not appropriate. And so the actual, like, the CEO of the facility called me into her office. And mm -hmm. she's like, we've been marketing to all these hospitals that we offer vital stim and all these patients will get, you know, great outcomes, but you're the you're not doing it with them. And I gave her, like, a four-page, like, research handout of, like, these are the patients it's appropriate for. These are the patients it's not appropriate for. And she was like, oh my gosh, I had no clue. Like it ended up being a really productive meeting. But yeah, she was like, I had no clue. I thought it was just like every patient gets vital stim. And I was like, no. So <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, and things like that are just so frustrating for our field. And so if you, and that's a really good chance as SLPs to step out of the box and show them we're not just winging it. We're not just, pulling things out of the therapy box and deciding we'll throw it at this patient. Like there's true reasons and evidence behind what we do. But the funny thing is, is one of the research articles I sent you is amazing. So what they did was they interviewed a group of SLPs to see what type of dysphagia approach they would use on a patient following a stroke. And the funny thing is the top 
approach that they would use first, 73% SLP of SLP said they would sit and do supervised swallowing trials. And so they're just watching their patients eat as therapy. And so, so many SLPs are doing this, but also the study showed that there's such a difference in the way that SLPs approach dysphagia. There's really no standard. There's no, you know, pattern that people are following. So one SLP does this, one SLP does this. And so to other professionals, especially professionals that float to different buildings, it looks like SLPs are just winging it. Like one SLP thinks this is a good idea. One SLP thinks this is a good idea. And so, you know, we really do need a, and I think with, you know, ITSE and all of these new things that are coming to be, you know, standardized, that's really going to help because SLPs all over the world are just doing different things. And so it's really confusing to other professionals what we actually do and why we do them. So I thought that study was so interesting. Yeah, I think that I honestly have not, I just was looking at the reference for it and I have not seen this before. So this is dysphagia therapy and stroke, a survey of speech and language therapists in the International Journal of Language and Communication Disorder. So this will be in the show notes, you guys, but yeah, I'll have to check it out. That's It goes through like each option that they can choose for dysphagia and a lot of things it also showed was they're not used. They all about over half of them had access to instrumentation and they all reported that they rarely or never use it to implement a dysphagia program, even though they have access to it because the way we've always done it. I know. And I know that's a thing that's going to get you heated. (laughs) Yes. Thanks, Erica. Thanks for pushing my buttons today. I know. But it's just amazing that, you know, with all of this new research, we're still making these decisions based on what we think is our clinical judgment, which does have a degree of, you know, strength to it, but it's not the strongest. So we really need to be using this new research to shape our our clinical decisions, which is important for young clinicians to hear. You know, it's okay to step outside of the box of what your supervisor does or what your grad school professors taught you. It's okay to switch your view of what therapy should look like because new research comes out. You know, that's that's so important to me. So right, I I last week I was dealing with a facility that they were you know telling their SLPs that they were ordering too many fees. And they wanted them to show them a flow chart of when they recommend an instrumental. And it's like, it's not cut and dry like that. Yeah. You know, it's not like this patient has this, therefore they get a fees. You know, it's not going to be, that's like, I keep saying what a trained monkey can do, you know. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> I know. And, you know, I was going to tell you another story. This I went to do a fees the other day and the SLP, I was talking to her about coming on your podcast and she was like, oh, you have to tell Teresa this story. It's really going right. to get her heated. <laughs> and I said, okay. Oh, great. But so, <laughs> the patient Everybody knows was, how to push my buttons in the world. <laughs> I know. It's all about instrumentation or lack yeah. thereof. And so yeah. the patient that actually came to Scope came from a huge hospital in a surrounding area no instrumentation, not even really a bedside swallow. The report said that they gave trials and the patient, this is what it actually said, really, that the patient stopped coughing on textures of puree and honey thick. And so recommend diet of puree and honey thick. Yeah. And so the patient is sent to this inpatient rehab hospital that I do fees at and the SLP is like, what am I supposed to do with this? It doesn't tell me anything about impairments, what was going on, signs or symptoms. It just says the patient stopped coughing with honey and puree. So here we are scoping this patient and they were great. I recommend the regular and thin. You know, yeah. how awful for that patient to be on honey and puree for a week. Yeah. Ugh. yeah. So, you know. I know. I I wrote, I think I wrote something on like, I don't know, social media on Instagram or something a few weeks ago. Like 
It was like I had gotten to the point one week that I just was like getting bored of my job because every single patient that I had seen that week had not had an appropriate bedside or recommended recommended an instrumental. It was like, you know, coughed at bedside, recommended putting thick in puree. And it's just like I, I had like seven patients in a row that I went in and did the fees and they had nothing wrong with them. And it was regular and thin. And I'm just like, I was just getting like. I had a really bad Teresa moment because I was like, what am I even doing? Like, the, like my job is so boring. I just like, <laughs> but I had, it is, it is like, I like to see, like, I like to see actual swallows and figure out what's going on with them. You know, it was like so boring having like seven normal swallows in a row, but they were just <laughs> vanished know. to thicken liquids for no reason. And I, it's like, I, it's funny. I get like emails and stuff that or people even wrote like an iTunes review that all I do is talk about the same thing on this podcast is instrumentation. And, you know, I need to get a new soapbox, something, but it's like, clearly it's not hitting everybody. Right. So if you know somebody like, please give them my podcast. Like, yeah. well, because I'm still like facing it every day. It again. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I still see it every single day. So I don't know where these people are, but tell them yeah. about my podcast. So one actually really good source I sent I sent two because two these two articles are really just my favorite. And the second one is comparing a bedside swallow eval to fees simultaneously. And it's amazing. And yes. so any clinician that asks me about fees versus a bedside, I'm always going to send them this way. And I sent you the link, but basically with the bedside swallow, I don't want to read it all, but it just says like results indicated a reported 90% inability to determine the bolus flow, pre-swallow spillage residue, 83% inability to determine pharyngeal and laryngeal anatomy, and 88% inability to determine overall swallow safety. And so here we are at the bedside trying to make these significant decisions about this patient's nutrition and hydration, and we have 88% inability to determine that. And so what are we doing? And then yeah. with these, all of the same things are 100% ability to determine. Right. Pharyngeal and laryngeal anatomy, the pre-spill residue, all of those things we're able to see 100%. So when you see those numbers side by side, it's just hard to think that we're still in the era of being 88% inaccurate yeah. at bedside yeah. and changing someone's diet. So it's just, yeah, that's a really powerful study. So if you have time, you should definitely yes. look yes. at that. Yes, these will be in the show notes, everybody. So yeah. Yeah. So that's my soapbox of that. And I would like to take a second to thank our wonderful sponsor, EndoHD. EndoHD is a true high-definition endoscopy system created specifically for SLPs by an SLP for conducting fees studies. They provide extremely easy-to-operate fees equipment with fully automated archiving with zero downtime, intuitive software with one-touch recording, immediate fees study for review, and a customizable report template is provided. It's a maneuverable design that provides convenience to do fees in more locations in the hospital, ICU, CCU, PICU, exam room, patient room. So go to www.ndohd.com forward slash contact to discuss your specific fee systems requirements, pricing, or to request a live product demonstration. That's www.ndohd.com forward slash contact. So let, let me ask you, Erica, because you had a few questions this week about, you know, like I, I, I keep telling people like you need to advocate for, you know, whether it's more video fluoroscopy, whether it's more fees. And it seems to be like the hospital people that are giving me pushback, like, we only have so many radiology spots or we only have so many scopes or we only have so many clinicians. And I get that. But at what point do you advocate for we need more clinicians, more. we need more scopes in order to provide the standard of care for our patients? And I know, like you said, you put together a proposal and it wasn't approved. But I think, you know, 
you have to put yourself out there because you, you don't know. I mean, maybe in a year they change their mind and say, you know, yeah, we, we really do need to explore this avenue. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, so acute care hospitals are, are tricky because they are limited in what they do and they have their set ways that they do things. And But it comes down to patient care and best practice. And I mean, you would never expect a physician to work without the necessary tools that he needs or she needs. And so we should be on that same playing field, you know, as hard as it would be to keep fighting and keep advocating and keep proposing, go to different people in the hospital. That's definitely a necessity in our field because we can't do our job adequately without that. And I know everybody listening knows that and they're they're still hitting a wall and they're like, look, I've tried everything. This is just the way it has to be. And that might be true for now, like you said, um, but it doesn't hurt to go build a relationship with other people. And that's where it's going to start. You know, think outside the box of, of who you're speaking with and try somebody different, build a relationship, you know, show them case studies of what's worked in other places that have initiated a fees or MBS program and just keep, keep fighting the, the fight. And aside from instrumentation, it's the same thing with fighting for speech services. Like when I was the only full-time SLP, I was only able to see my patients for 15 or 30 minutes. And if I had an acute stroke with severe aphasia, I wanted an hour with that patient. And so I really had to advocate, like, you really need to help me by bringing in PR in here. This is what's best for the patient. And so, you know, the different people I talk to, you change your message, right? So if I'm talking to an administrator, I'm talking about these are still more I'm, I'm getting you more billable hours, billable services for the DOR. I'm saying, look, the more time I can spend with this patient, the better FIM gains they're going to get, the better outcomes they're going to get. But ultimately, this is what's best for the patient. So even though you have to bring in PRN, we're still gaining in other areas. So it's just important to to keep fighting that fight. I know it gets draining and discouraging and you keep hitting wall after wall after wall. But you just it's just part of our field is always going to be advocating because like we established speech is not well known. We're the redheaded stepchild. So I think anybody going into speech therapy, you just have to know a component of your job is always going to be fighting and advocating for what you need. That's just part of being a speech therapist. So, yeah. Yeah. But I, and I also, you know, I want to talk about, I love what you did is like you, you know, realize kind of the problem was bigger than just your facility Mm-hmm. And you swerved and you made a plan to start a mobile fees company to start, you know, to service every place else. And I think that's a lot of the conversations that I have with a lot of clinicians. Is, you know, I was so frustrated this place. They weren't listening to me. They weren't advocating. So I found a new job and now I work at a hospital where I'm so well respected. They give me all the tools I need, you know, and, and I know for some people it's not, you know, easy to up and quit your job tomorrow. Right. But if you're running into brick wall after brick wall after brick wall, at what point do you say maybe this place isn't for me. And I think on the flip side, I think we need to go into these interviews a little more eyes wide open too. Mm -hmm. you know, going in and asking these questions from the beginning. Will I have access to this? Is it possible to get these, you know, this equipment? Is it possible to get these services? And if the answer is just a hard no, you know, is that what you want to walk into and start your career like? Mm -hmm. You know, I have I had a hospital DOR contact me a few, maybe it was a few months ago, and he just asked if there was anybody that, and, and this hospital is particularly known for doing cruddy bedsides, doing cruddy modifieds. And he said, you know, we just can't keep staff. Do you know anybody, any SLP that would want to work here? And I just said, I'm going to be honest with you. This is what I've heard about working there. I've yeah. heard that you guys won't allow them to get fees. I've heard they're only allowed to see, have radiology like one time a week, you know, that they're not able to get out to get CEUs 
you know, and he was like, oh, okay, you know, I didn't know that was the standard. I didn't realize that all this stuff was important. I said, so, you know, maybe if you start offering that, you might get a lot more people that would be interested in the position. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, definitely. And simple things when you're applying are important. (laughs) I remember when I was first applying for jobs, I I was in between the inpatient rehab facility that I ended up choosing and the skilled nursing facility that is well known in town. And one of the questions I had was, where's your speech therapy area? Can I see it? And they said, well, we don't really have one, but we do have a large storage closet in the back that we can clean out. Ah, And And I was just thinking like, (laughs) this can't be real. No, thanks. I'm all set. In a closet. Like, what is that? But I don't think that's abnormal to go to a facility and they don't have a speech area. And so that's something that I thought if they don't even have a respected area for speech, there's no way that speech has a respected presence in that facility. And do I really want to take on that fight first thing at a grad school? No, I don't. So I chose the inpatient rehab who had two offices for speech therapy, even though they only had PRN, but it was just a better. So those are just things to ask always. Like you said, you're interviewing but well, on the topic of interviewing, I really wanted to talk about, to, I know you have lots of grad students that listen to your podcast, and I actually did a speech a few weeks ago at a grad school, actually at ACU, and a lot of them were saying, you know, all of the jobs are getting taken, and the rest of the jobs that are posted say you must have your C's, so what do we do? And I said, so are you not applying if it says you need your C's or at least calling? And they were like, no, you know, it says you need your C's. We're not going near that. And so I, when I applied to this inpatient rehab facility, it said must have C's and must have three years experience. And so I called them and I said, look, I don't have either of those things, but I'm really interested in this facility. I really think I can do a good job. Medical speech therapy is what I really want to be in. Can I at least come and interview? They gave me the job. And then five months later, I was one of the therapy leads there. And so I told this class, you know, don't be intimidated if it says you must have your C's. At least call them and let them know your interest in that building. And if if they're really needing an SLP and they like you, they'll take a chance on you. So so don't be afraid to go out there and and advocate for yourself. Like, of course, we're going to advocate for our field all the time. But you also have to advocate for yourself to get where you need to get. You know, yeah. So I, I love that you said that because I think that's one thing I hear from acute care clinicians all the time is like it's my dream to get you know this acute care position and work in the IC with critically ill patients and but there's no jobs available in my area and I was talking to one girl and I said well how do you know there's no jobs in your area and she's like why well, I'm on every listserv you know I look at all the listings every day and they're all for sniffs they're never hospitals and I was like have you bothered calling and she was like well no so she actually called it's a huge like nationally known hospital. And she called and said, you know, I'm interested in this position. And the woman that answered the phone is like, we've been begging HR to put up a listing for months. Mm -hmm. And I don't know why they're dragging their feet. We're desperate for help. And like three months later, she got hired at this nationally known hospital that, you know, she thought she never had a shot at and never had openings when they really on the inside were begging for help, but HR hadn't gotten around to posting the listing. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think it's just a testament to the field now is not for the shy or intimidated easily. Like there's so much to advocate for. There's so much to fight for. You really have to step out of your box and and just do it and go for it. And that's hard for young clinicians because you're coming out of the shell of grad school, right? Where your professors protect you. If you go out into a placement, you have a supervisor, a lot one-on-one. And so if you make a mistake, your supervisor's there to help you. You can bounce ideas back and forth 
in class. And then you go into the real world where sometimes you have a not so nice supervisor and you have not so nice coworkers and you have an administrator in GOR that could be critiquing you and saying you're doing this wrong, maybe doing this. And it, it can crack you really quick if, you're, if you don't yeah. have that strength going in and know that it's going to be like that. And so I wish it wasn't like that, but I just think speech therapy is just a field of advocacy. That's really just what yeah. we're doing. So. Yeah. I think I get so frustrated too, because I, I work with some incredible facilities and then I work with some not so incredible facilities. And I think I hate the people that have never had a taste of a really good facility before, mm-hmm. you know, and it's like, I promise they're out there. I really do promise there are facilities that let you order whatever you need. They You order whatever studies, get all the equipment you need, get all the materials you need. And, you know, thank you to the SLPs that advocated to get that facility where that is in the first place, you know? Right. And that's what's interesting about doing mobile fees is you have perspective on so many yes. facilities. Every facility <laughs> is so different. But exactly like you said, I can walk into a facility to do my first fees and I can instantly tell if the SLP has a strong presence there or not, yeah. or if yeah. they're respected there or not. And there's so many times where I'm speaking with an SLP to get fees initiated there. And they're too terrified to go to their administrator or DOR. So they give me their information. And they're like, can you please call them and yeah. do this for me? Which, yeah. of course, I'm happy to do. But I want the SLP there with me. So eventually he or she can take over that advocacy for me. Because I'm a stranger. Yeah. You know, Of course, I'm going to build that relationship. So they feel comfortable contrasting with me and doing fees. But ultimately, it's that SLP's patient. And that SLP needs to be there and do that. And so I just find it so interesting and I will say a lot of the SLPs that that send me in their place happen to be younger clinicians that just don't really understand how to advocate or how to go one-on-one with an administrator who instantly is like, well, that's too expensive. We're not doing that. And right. then they're instantly like, oh, okay, well, I guess that's a no. And I'm like, no, that's not a no. That's an opportunity to educate them. <laughs> there you go. So, I know. I had, a, yeah. I had a young clinician that just, for some reason, the doctor was just picking her apart. And just not, you know, questioning all her orders. And I was like, what the heck? Like, I've never had this experience with this doctor here before. And so, you know, she was so discouraged. And same thing, what you said, she was like, can you just go talk to him? Like, he won't listen to me. And I was like, no, this is silly. We're going to go in there together. And so I had to go in together. And I was like, you know what? She really knows what she's talking about here. Like, she may be young, but she's incredibly book smart. And she understands evidence-based practice and, and, you know, he just was like, okay, thanks. You know, didn't really entertain what I was saying, it seemed like. But ever since then, he's completely backed off of her and hasn't questioned anything. So it's like, you know, I, I don't know what, what went wrong in that, you know, maybe the physician just thought she was super young and didn't know what she was talking about. But since I had been in the building for so many years that, I don't know, but I, I just hated that she had to even endure that type of constant questioning and scrutiny. and Right. And so... That actually is why when I do, when I set up a contract with fees, I always encourage a lunch and learn or training or in-service of some sort. And I always ask that as many disciplines as possible be there. It's not just for the SLP. I want the administrator there. I want the director of nursing. I want the charge nurse. I want the DOR. If there's a PT or OT that has an off time, I want them there as well. Because I'm not only educating them about fees, but I'm educating them about why their SLP needs this service and how it's going to affect all of them because they all share the same patient and we all want the same thing. So once we do that, the SLP feels so much more comfortable and they're golden. They're ready to go because everybody kind of understands. But it is interesting because every time I do a fee for the first time, rarely is it just the SLP and myself in there. Yeah. 
yeah. so many times I have other therapists that are like, Oh, this is so cool. Can I watch? Like, what are we looking at? And I just think that's so awesome that they are interested in what we're doing. And that's an opportunity for the SLP. I kind of take the seat back and I'm just scoping and doing the fees. And I really let them do the education of what they're seeing, what the anatomy is, why we're doing this, because that's their patient and that's their, that's their team. And I just think that's such a awesome time to, to show them, you know, we do know what we're doing and this is, such a big part of what we do and so I just love it when the more people the the merrier I just love it yeah yeah I had a new facility last week that I went to and and same thing I had a whole slew of different professions in there and they just all thought it was like the coolest thing ever but what was interesting was the someone had asked the SLP like what are all these what are we seeing here and the SLP was like I'm not even sure I've never even seen these done before (laughs) you know so it was it was just such a great teaching moment all around for you know I could take the time and and go through and explain things to the SLP and she was a wonderful sponge she was soaking it all up and she's like we never had exposure to this in grad school I you know feel so dumb and I was like no this is great it's okay yeah, <laughs> you got to learn somehow. It is. So. And it's amazing. I mean, I even had my old DOR who I still have a really good relationship with when I was there doing a CET, he wanted me to scope him because he thought he had vocal nodules from singing. Yeah. <laughs> and so he's like, can you please scope me? So he was able to see what it felt like, what it, how it was. And he was able to see it and he just thought it was so awesome. And so just again, having those relationships where people trust you, they trust your opinion, they trust your service. And they know that you're making decisions because you have the evidence behind it is is yeah. everything. Not even just in fees and instrumentation, but all types of speech therapy. The relationships and the evidence are what are going to propel you in your career. I'm I'm 100% sure of that. So, yeah. But I did want to touch on how we can kind of overcome the stepchild syndrome. In yes, awesome. <laughs> because so many times it's just like, well, that's just how it is, you know. PT and OT first, and then whatever leftover we'll get for speech. And I just don't like that. I don't, I don't know. So I don't know, actually, if you're, are you familiar with the Enneagram personality type? Yes. Yep. Yep. Okay. So I am a type two, which is the helper. And one of our downfalls is we are unable to tell people no. So we're, oh, Erica. so, (laughs) So when I first started, I kept getting asked, can you see this patient longer? Can you see this patient for me? This patient's really annoying me today. Can you go see them? They don't want to work with me. And so, of course, I was just like, sure. Yes, 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 yes. And then I started realizing, wait, this is unethical because this patient doesn't need this much speech therapy. This patient does not need to be on my caseload just because they're a difficult patient and other, other disciplines are having a hard time. So to counter that, saying yes to everything, you also want to, of course, be mindful of being a team player. Right. If a PT or OT gets called out sick or have an emergency, you want to step in and be there to help the minutes. But as a day to day stance, you don't want to be the one that's taking leftovers because they don't want to get their minutes or they have a difficult patient. And so really advocating and stepping up and saying, like, this is the minutes that I'm going to see this patient for because this is what they need. This is where I stop. You know, I'm not going to keep seeing this patient because they're screaming in the therapy gym. And the only way that they can get their minutes is if speech therapy goes in their room. Like, that's just not what we're going to do. And I think for so long, other disciplines just do that. And we just say, okay, you know, if you're anything like me, and I don't know if it was because I was a speech therapist or type two, and I just couldn't say no, or both. But I really had to step out of that and be like, I need to do what's ethical here and see the appropriate amount of time for these patients. And so that's one thing that we can do is just making sure we're making ethical decisions in our treatment and not kind of, and being strong, but nice, but not getting walked over on minutes. Yeah. I think that's one thing I love about, you know, talking with 
with Dan Weinstein. He's so passionate about this. And also I did an episode with Jess Kalaski a few weeks ago too about ethics and just we don't have to treat everybody. Like not everybody needs our services. You know, we may be the gatekeeper and say, oh yeah, this person's having some serious GI issues. We've got to get them out to the GI or, you know, this person's got a gnarly mass in their throat. They need to go to ENT right away, but it doesn't mean we need to sit there and watch them eat the whole time. You know, so I think we do have a role so much in a lot of these cases, but it's not our role to be doing therapy for four weeks for just to get minutes for our DOR. Yeah. 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 And so that's a, that's a big thing for speech is what are appropriate patients and, you know, don't get walked over, but don't be rude in the process, but, you know, just be strong and and kind of fight for that. But an an important thing is for speech, especially new clinicians, you know, this is what I speak on because I'm a new clinician and I, this is what I have experience in, but you want to designate yourself as the expert in your area. You know, so just like PT and OT, if I needed help with a transfer or if I needed a weight bearing status or what ADLs I need to use, I'm always going to go to that patient's therapist and ask and really utilize their advice because I respect their opinion. But how do we turn the tables to where they come to us and ask us our professional opinion and actually respect it? And the way that you do that is by, of course, using evidence-based practice and explaining what you're doing, but also put yourself in the area to, to be an educator in the area. And so doing creative trainings and in-services is so important. So you know, of course, all the time we do the dysphagia and oral care, which is really important, of course, but it doesn't really resonate with PT and OT or nursing as much because it's just, it's kind of our thing and they know that. So get creative with your in-services. And so a couple that would be awesome would be how should therapy look with a patient who just had a TBI or right hemisphere disorder? How does that look? You know, because so how, how many times do we go in the gym and the music's blaring, the radio is right beside the patient and they're on the parallel bars and they can't even focus. And you're just wanting to scream like it's not the patient, it's the environment. And then when I see in the notes that say cognitive status affecting progress, I'm like, I don't think it is. I think it's the environment affecting progress, you know? And so that's your turn to really step in there and educate. Like, how can we decrease the stimulation? How can we get this patient to benefit from the therapy the most? And then PT and OT will really soak that up because that affects their treatment as well. How does a cognitive communication disorder affect emulation and falls? What are the correlations there? You know, we're using some of the same processes to to plan our next movement. And if a patient has a cognitive communication disorder, where are the breakdowns? And how is that going to affect your ambulation scores? You know, what do you need to be focusing on? All of those things. A good one also is, you know, how do you communicate with a patient with advanced dementia that's extremely agitated and doesn't want to do much? You know, how do you conduct a session with a patient who has severe global aphasia and you and your there's a communication breakdown what is your therapy session going to look like and what are strategies to overcome those things and so when you use creative in services like that you designate yourself as the expert to where they want to seek out your advice and they want to seek out your opinion because they know you're the expert in that area and so i just think that's really important to to get in there and and show them all of the training that you've had the evidence that you have and how it can be a benefit to them you know and their patients as well so yeah, absolutely. I, I love that. I, I think what's so hard is a lot of times, like, we just mistake them not knowing for them not caring. Of course. You know, and, and a lot of times we just have to educate them to show them why this is important to us and why there's evidence to support this, as opposed to just us nagging for no reason. Yeah. So Yeah, and I don't <laughs> want to come across as I think PT and OT hate speech, because I definitely don't think that's no, I no. know so many facilities have great cohorts and great relationships between disciplines. 
I just think as our field is changing and our research is changing, they're not up to date with that because, of course, they don't follow speech therapy research. So that's up to us to educate right. everyone on on why our practice is changing and why we're doing the things that we're doing, you know. And right. so, and then it just helps you become a well-rounded therapist. You know, they're attending your in-services. You attend their in-services. I remember I attended an in-service on um, a PT presenting on NDT, even though that had nothing to do with what I was doing, but I, I wanted to soak it up and become a well-rounded therapist. And so when you show them the respect of their field, it's easy to get that in return. So I just think it's yeah. so important to have that interdisciplinary care and respect. Yeah. I, I, at one facility I worked at, they made everybody go to all the in-services, which at first I was like, why do I have to sit through this OT splinting in-service? This <laughs> yeah. has nothing to do with me. But it actually was super helpful because... I learned things about the patient and, you know, the way that they're having difficulty with their splint, but they also may have communication difficulties that they can't express what's wrong with the splint and things like that. And we, I found that by all of us going to all of these different in-services, we learned so much more about how to work interdisciplinary wise. And it was super beneficial, you know, when, you know, they would moan and groan when, you know, I think Vital Stim came in and did a, oh, yeah. <laughs> a presentation and they were like, this is so stupid. And then after they're like, that was the coolest thing ever. I you know. know. <laughs> so. I know. It's, it's, I, and, and going to an in-service about splinting, you know, at first, like you said, I would be like, what is this? But speech therapy is yeah. so versatile. I think if I watch somebody put on a splint, I would be counting steps. How many steps does that take to put on? And right. I know my patient's right. not going to be able to do a five-step sequence on their own. And so that's what we're right. going to work on because that's what's beneficial to the right. patient. And so, you know, and then they respect you for using kind of their modalities, but with your speech therapy background, it's just all great for the patient. And so yeah. I just, I love all yeah. that. Yeah. So, but I think the, the main thing for any clinician, but especially young clinicians is to, to get in there and build relationships first. With everyone. Once you have good relationships and they respect your practice, they're also going to respect your request. So if you're requesting to an administrator who really respects your practice that you need instrumentation or you need a new vital stim machine or you need new materials or whatever you need, if they respect you and you have that relationship, your your request is going to go a lot farther than if they've never met you before because you're a new clinician and you're coming in really shy saying, can I order this? You know, it, it, yeah, it's going to yeah. really change your outcomes there. And, you know, I think it's important to follow up with clinical and non-clinical staff. Like I used to go to dietary all the time and thank them so much for all of the extra trays they gave me, spending so much time modifying diets because, you know, and I would let them know how safe they're keeping my patients and what they're doing and just kind of bring it full circle. So everybody on the team, from physician to nursing to therapy to dietary, everybody knows what piece they have to that patient's puzzle. and because we're speech, we can really initiate that communication. That's what we're good at. That's what we do. And so I think it's so important just to bring everything full circle and, and, and constantly be present. I remember when I first met you, you had talked about being omnipresent. That's your thing is always being there and in people's minds. And I think that's important to, even when you're not there, you want to have a presence as speech in that facility so if they have a question you're the first thing that pops in their mind because you're the expert you know what you're doing you practice with evidence and they want you there and they want your opinion so just just work on those relationships and get out there (laughs) yep yep and and a lot of times it happens in a moment of crisis like i i got a call from a facility i think a week or two ago they got a ton of state tags and all of a sudden now they're calling Teresa to come fix everything and remedy everything because 
diets were a mess, you know, everyone was choking. It was just a crazy thing, you know, and it was like, because they've heard my name a million times, you know, they reached out to me to come solve the puzzle. Yeah. And, <laughs> you know, it, it hates to, you hate to be thrown in, you know, trial by fire at that point, but I'm happy that I was able to help out and get them, get them on, get the yeah. ship righted. Yeah. It's all about that presence in those relationships. It's always cool to look back and see like, oh, I was a part of this. I know. Yeah. I know. And so now at this inpatient rehab, there's two full-time speech therapists. They have a huge presence in the building. All awesome. sorts of trainings. They're initiating the IFT training. They're doing an oral care program. They're doing rehab dining. Like things that I only dreamt of when I was there, they're putting into action. And I just think it's amazing. I love it. I wish everybody awesome. was like that. So. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have any final thoughts, Erica? I think that was wonderful. I mean... Not really. I think, you know, I just really would encourage, of course, all clinicians, but young clinicians such as myself to to not be intimidated by the turmoil that our field is in. I know it can get a lot. And but if you just kind of go in with an open mindset and just know that everything that you're doing is for the better of the patients that you're serving and building those relationships and stepping out of your comfort zone. Like I said, I'm not a people person. I'm not somebody that I ever thought would be going head to head with an administrator or physician. That's just not me. But when you realize the outcome, it's just so important to get in there and do it. And don't let your age be a factor of why you're not doing that. I've had so many times people ask me how old I am and I cringe, you know, like I'm 27. (laughs) Yeah, Um, yeah. Because I know their opinion because I have the same opinion when somebody's taking care of me that's young. But, you know, I really try to show them that I'm doing the best that I can with my practice and by using evidence-based theories and and knowledge. And, you know, and I think, I think that's what we need to be doing. Yeah, absolutely. Well, this was so great, Erica. I love this. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much. So if you would love to hear more of these episodes and get some easily digestible bites of swallowing knowledge, then please leave a review on iTunes or pledge a small amount on patreon.com forward slash swallow your pride because that is what keeps these episodes coming. Also, don't forget to subscribe, share with your closest colleagues, and show notes will always be available to download over on swallowyourpridepodcast.com where you can also be notified of the latest podcast episodes. Also, credit to Stephanie Jacobson for her incredible editing skills, and thank you so much to all of you for listening.